Save the date for the 12th of September. Join our webinar on digital transformation in manufacturing. We are exploring how IoT, AI and smart factories are reshaping our sector. Hear from industry leaders like Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Heriot Watt University. This is a must attend for professionals and decision makers in manufacturing. So register now at resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. That's resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. The link is also in the description. I had a great conversation this week with Russell Watkins, the co-founder of Senpai. We discussed the big PR problem in manufacturing right now, cultural differences when implementing lean, the nuances and challenges of working with large versus smaller manufacturers, and how we almost came to the brink of nuclear annihilation. From Redfern Media, this is Remake Manufacturing. My guest this week is Russell Watkins. He is influencing and redesigning the manufacturing landscape. Russell is the co-founder of Senpai, a leading figure in lean manufacturing and the Toyota production system principles. With a rich expertise, Russell has been driving forward a multitude of businesses from those with a 1 million turnover to over 6 billion turnover over the last 17 years. From shop floors in Europe to boardrooms in Asia, Russell's transformative work has touched four continents, upskilling more than a thousand people and enabling over a hundred businesses to thrive. Whether it's consulting for Toyota Group or creating the JCB production system or establishing lean academies for four billion pound global manufacturing businesses, Russell's impact has been far reaching. So Russell Watkins, thank you for coming back to the show for, the, for a second time. Welcome back to Remit Manufacturing. Thank you very much, Nathan. Good to be here. Looking forward to the uh, discussion today and thank you for the invite. A lot has happened in the last few years, especially since we last spoke. I think we last spoke in the height of the pandemic, actually. So just discuss the emerging trends that you're seeing in the manufacturing industry, particularly in the wake of COVID-19 and how are manufacturers adapting to these changes? Uh, there's a lot I could talk about here, and a lot of this gets covered elsewhere. So I'm going to try and be specific, but relevant. And I've got four points to make here. The first one is, I think, one of the biggest trends and issues is that manufacturing has a PR problem. Uh, we have a relevance problem. Not that we're not relevant, but the perception of it. Uh, I sit on the strategic advisory board of an uh, organisation called Interact. And Interact are trying to bring together different disciplines in manufacturing to look at future manufacturing and the impact on people. Now, they've recently done a piece of work with Strathclyde Uni, where they interviewed about two and a half thousand normal punters from around the, the UK about perceptions of manufacturing. And there are some fascinating things come out of that. The first thing is that 64% of people are positive about manufacturing. They think it's a good thing. But of those, 39% think it's just manual work. It's repetitive. It's not much high skill stuff and it's not much technical stuff. 20% think it's low paid, which is completely wrong because it pays about 12% more than most other sectors. 60% said it was just repetitive and only 40% would recommend it to people they know, friends and family. So there's a bit of a profile issue here. It's not helped by the government, various governments that keep this apolitical industrial strategy and the fact that they turn it on, turn it off and get interested and don't 
So my first point is in manufacturing, all of us need to do our best to raise a profile of it so people understand better. That's a trend. The technology sector has done a great job of branding itself and marketing itself. I mean, you think of um, standout CEOs like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. There are so many great people to sort of build brands around who have a great magnetic personal brands. Doesn't really seem to happen in, in manufacturing. It's true. We haven't got our showman. The closest we've got in the UK is Jürgen Meyer, uh, who lots of people haven't heard of. Um, and I think maybe it's because um, if you think about front of house, back of house of a, of a restaurant, front of house is the tech, back of house is how the tech is made. So yeah, we, we definitely need our own rock stars. Yeah. What, what were the other three points? So my second point is about people and respect for people. We need to get better at attracting and retaining talent. Now, this one has been a long running issue but it's got more pointed. And I think we'll talk about this in relation to COVID as well. Particularly younger people today. So I'm just past 50. People in their 20s and 30s, they want something different. The old command and control doesn't sit well with the autonomy they want. They want work with purpose, the Simon Sinek style. Why? Why am I here? Not, not, not just what do you want me to do. And they want to be able to master stuff. You may think that manufacturing has already made that migration, but there are still some old fixed mindsets. The The younger generation of thinking hasn't quite flushed through to the higher echelons of manufacturing yet. So we need to get better at attracting and retaining. Part of that is my third point, which is digital and the future, Industry 4.0. We need to make it sexy for people to want to come into manufacturing. Industry 4.0 is fascinating. I, I do a bit around digital transformation and it is still a bit of a wild west. And a trend and a skill that manufacturers need to get hold of is not to get lured into shiny trinkets, to automate and invest in Industry 4 where they should, not just where they can. Which means stripping ego out of it and it means developing a diagnostic ability and being able to say to providers, I have this pain, our business has this pain point, how can you help? Not show me your shiny trinket and I'll see if I can shoehorn it into the business. So we need to become better uh, at understanding industry four and how to work with vendors. And the final point, which actually shouldn't be the final point, is environment in its broadest sense. I think while the world has come a long way in manufacturing in terms of considering the environment and making sure we have our waste streams in place and making sure that we're using less power, etc. But still, and yet... We do it because we feel we have to, rather than having a real desire to improve the planet, I think. If you look at what people are doing, strip away the, the CSR greenwashing, and people are still doing the minimum. The plus side of things like the, uh, the high input costs is that it gives a reason to go harder into it. And there are some exemplars around, but there is a broader point on environment, and this is my final point here, and that's... Um, you look at the devices we use and the precious rare earth metals that go into them, things like cobalt and lithium. We are actively, all of us sat in the UK today who have a smartphone or any kind of device, we are supporting the exploitation of people in Democratic Republic of Congo and other places around the world. And we need to get a bit better at making sure our supply chains have integrity. Russell, you covered you covered a lot there. I love I love the framework. I wish we had time to go into all four points. Let's see how many we can cover in in, in some depth. Um, the first one that I want to touch on is the skill shortage issue. I mean, I I, I love the framework. I, I think overall, what you're talking about is 
the fact that manufacturing needs branding. It needs to, it needs a, a good PR specialist to come in and position it um, to make it attractive to, to young people thinking about careers, to, you know, people even within the industry to talk to them about opportunities within manufacturing. I think there's a huge PR issue and that has led to a massive skill shortage um, in manufacturing. I mean, there are millions of people that are employed in in the manufacturing sector. Um, How do you think COVID-19 has impacted the industry and sort of what strategies do you think are working? Should we be trying in order to attract and keep the best talent in the industry? So you're right. We, do, I mean, in, in the UK alone, uh, somewhere between two and a half and 2.7 million people work, work in manufacturing. So it's a big chunk of our people. Interestingly, to take your question, it's not just COVID that's uh, created a skill shortage. It was happening before then as we're having to learn to wean ourselves off cheap labour sources. Um, COVID and Brexit actually accelerated the fact that we can no longer just rely on, for example, Eastern Europeans latterly coming across and doing a good job, doing jobs here that local English people weren't taking up. The great thing about, uh, about the, I say the great thing, uh, the only silver lining for me about things like Brexit and COVID is that it is forcing manufacturers to get a bit better at attracting and retaining. I sat on a panel a couple of weeks ago talking about skills and diversity, equity and inclusion. And we talked about, look, we're so short of skills in manufacturing because people have so many choices. What can we do? And we we covered like seven points, um, seven major points from uh, making sure that we engage people young through schools, national manufacturing days, festivals of manufacturing at, at schools, uh, making sure we make the digital aspect clear so that they want to come in, getting them early at five or six years of age, to making sure we, in, in terms of diversity and equity, making sure we get women back on board, uh, career break women, um, and not so much in the offices alone, more into ops. Um, we covered things like uh, next gen, uh, we covered things like, sorry, pools as well. This is a fascinating one. I saw a couple of people speak recently about the, the pools we're fishing in. And I think we need to get smarter at deciding where to look for talent. So there are two, well, three, three areas that are under, underused in terms of manufacturing talent. One is the secure estate or ex-offenders. People like Timpsons, people like Greggs, people like Halfords have a large cohort of people from from those areas who are doing a good job for them because these are people who need a second chance. Um, Ex-forces people, they're very much in demand now because forces have have a good mindset. So we should be mining the ex-forces people. Um, And thirdly, Sony in particular, I I met a fellow from Sony in Wales and they are looking at uh, will over skill and making sure they're not just focusing on qualifications as a barrier to vocational people to come into the industry. That's before we get into things like uh, the government where uh, the apprenticeship levy, broadening it to a skills levy or um, uh, you know, encouraging employers to grow their own rather than waiting for the government. Remake Manufacturing is brought to you by Redfern Media, the digital agency for B2B manufacturers. We partner with B2B manufacturers to listen, think, create, and innovate. To find out more, 
head over to remakemanufacturing.com and sign up to the podcast, plus manufacturing marketing and technology insights. Now, back to the show. Russell, when we spoke on the last episode, you talked at length about what Senpai means and you explained lean manufacturing in some detail. Anyone who wants to go and listen to that, there's a link in the description and the show notes to that episode. You've worked with businesses of all shapes and sizes from 1 million turnover to 6 billion turnover. Can you share some universal challenges that these businesses face when implementing lean manufacturing and the Toyota production system? Um, So I've got three things to share, really. Um, The universal things are, number one, to make it work, you have to link it to a reason, either a pain or a gain that the business and the people in it are facing. So maybe you've got bad quality, maybe you can't retain customers, maybe you can't deliver on time, maybe your costs are too high. Once you've identified a pain, then it gives you a reason to pursue a lean strategy. Then your job is to link that pain for the business to the pain of the people working in a business at all levels. And then people have a reason why. It's back to that Sinek why thing. People need a why. They'll follow They'll follow orders for a short amount of time, but they need a why. The second point I'll make universal principle on applying TPS and lean is you can't consult your way to it. Now, that's going to sound a bit odd coming, coming from a lean consultant, but you, you, you can't outsource or delegate this. If you're an ops director or an MD or an ops manager, there is, you have to recognize that if you want a stable shop and a stable, profitable manufacturing business, you've got to engage in some habits every day and every week that help your people to improve the factory. And the third thing, and the most important thing, is keep it simple. People try to do too much. They try to flower stuff up. They create big Kaizen or lean promotion departments. They create huge production systems. Just get out there and give it a go if you have a good reason to, and you'll learn. How how does that advice apply to manufacturers on the smaller end, let's say 1 million turnover, to those manufacturers at the higher end, 6 billion turnover, plus that we mentioned at at the beginning of the show. I mean, you work with a range of manufacturers with different complexities uh, and different uh, sort of scales of shop floor. How does your advice differ depending on whether you're working with smaller or larger manufacturers? What I'm going to say first is everything is situational. So there's there's a technical academic term, which is mimetic isomorphism, which pretty much means copy and paste. (laughs) Lazy consulting, lazy lean manufacturing means you just copy and paste and change the name at the top of the uh, quote or the, you know, the the top of the plan. That doesn't work because every manufacturer starts from a different point, wants to go to a different point and has a different set of variables and circumstances they're grappling with. The maturity of the business, the age of the kit, the customer base, uh, how how much do people know about lean? So whether it's a big or a small company, that's just another shift in, it's just another type of situational stuff in lean. What you have to do is what you always do. You diagnose. So there's, there's a bit of a doctor, pharmacist thing going on here. You have to have the ability to diagnose what is different about smaller to bigger manufacturers is that in some ways it's easier in smaller manufacturers, get your arm around it, not so many levels to wade through. Um, in some ways it's harder because job roles and delineation is not so clear and people 
don't focus so well in small businesses because they're so busy covering so many roles. What I will say for the smaller manufacturers is, first of all, you have to make it simple. I'll give you a prime example here. There's something called Hoshin Camry in lean manufacturing. It's policy deployment. What it basically means is that the business has a plan. So you have to run the business, but also every year you've got to come up with a vital few things to improve the business. If you go to somewhere like JCB, Toyota, uh, Johnson Controls, anywhere, they have this Hoshin policy, which is got a big X matrix, got a big process behind it. If you try and put that into a small manufacturer, they'll kick you out because you just haven't got the people to support it and the time. So you have to take the essence of the lean tool and simplify it down to the bare minimum that will practically deliver a benefit. And that is the best thing for somebody who's trying to learn lean. Do it in a small business because you can't get away with copy and paste. I guess another variable to add to all of those wrinkles would be cultural differences. I mean, you've worked with businesses in the UK, in Asia, all over the world. How do cultural differences impact the implementation and the success of lean transformations? Now, this is fascinating. So I I thought about this. Um, I'm going to give four quick examples, one from India, one from China, one from Mexico, and one from, I'm going to call it Western world, US, UK. The short answer is, it's important to recognize the culture so that you can gain rapport with people and you can deal with them on a respectful level. But the cultural differences themselves, when you are, when you, once you've established rapport and you've established a way of communicating and passing knowledge, I don't think they make a slightest bit of difference to the success, stickiness of lean in a business. I've seen as bad manufacturing companies in Japan as I've seen in the UK. And I've seen as good manufacturing companies in India as I've seen in Japan. Um, four, four quick examples. So in India, I was in Pune once trying to do a 5S activity on the shop floor, which is basically trying to improve the way the shop floor operates, uh, the, the organization of a cell. I couldn't, for love or money, get any of the managers to get involved because uh, once you've got a manager title at that point, you, you'd work so hard to get there that you didn't want to regress to the shop floor to get your hands dirty because you'd worked so hard to get there. Now, that's an, that was an acutely Indian thing about gaining that role and not wanting to go back. I had to threaten not to do the activity to get the management team involved, which is critical. When I was in China, uh, there was a problem with crates and nails sticking out of crates that was hurting, um, that was hurting the hands and cutting the wrists of assembly people. It took me a couple of days to see it, actually. I'm disappointed to this day it took me a couple of days to see it. Um, and when I raised it, nobody wanted to raise it as an idea with the management because uh, it wasn't a done thing to complain. Now, that, that, that wouldn't happen in this country, so we have, to, we have to get past that. In Mexico, I worked with a team who I, I just couldn't get them to plan what they were doing. They just wanted to run out on the shop floor and move stuff, which is tremendous. There is a Mexican, and I noticed in Peru as well, there's very much a right, let's just go and give it a go. Let's go and do something. Now, it's easier to steer that than overcome the inertia that you find in somewhere like the UK or the US, where you'll get a number of people in a room to talk about Kaizen and to to try to improve an area. And they just want to stay in the room and talk about how it might work, not get out there and do it. So uh, 
I think it depends. It, it kind of stretches back to the last question as well. You, you know, you're, you're asking me about the differences in sectors. Yeah. So sectors, um, there are differences. It, like country to country, there are differences in sectors. So if you're working in food and drink or medical devices, best you know that there's a, a large traceability element to it so that when you're doing a, an improvement activity on a, an injection molding machine in a medical devices shop, you're going to spend at least half the time trying to improve the traceability paperwork and the mountains of that as you are trying to improve the process. If you're working with a wine bottling plant, there's no point talking about assembly line balance. You need to be looking at things that, are good, that affect the capital intensiveness of the kit. Things like things like TPM and OEE. So um, it comes back to the overarching point, which is Lean is not a copy and pasting, it's situational. And the skill is learning what to diagnose to solve what problem. Really fascinating. Um, I kind of regret asking such a broad brush question now because there are so many nuances and it's very hard to pin you down to, 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 you know, to one answer. But I, I completely agree and understand that there is a lot of idiosyncrasies uh, to take account of. Russell, I'm going to ask you a question that we asked you when we first spoke in our first interview, but you probably don't remember what you said for the answer now. This is our traditional closing question. We end the show every week asking our guests the same thing. Tell us the one invention that if it was never manufactured, your life would be unbearable. Can I be cheeky and twist the question? (laughs) I should have expected something like this. (laughs) I'm sorry. There's a man who's in my mind a lot at the moment. So uh, last time I answered uh, origami paper because I like origami and craft beer because, and brewing because I like beer. I remember. Um, I I thought about this hard and I... uh, I was thinking about, uh, I was going to give you a general answer, like there are people who have invented uh, vaccines and things that make it a lot easier, but it, it's a little bit vanilla that all, all of us are grateful for that. So I'd like to offer you a person, a who rather than the what, and it's kind of related to the march of AI. Sure. Back in 1983, there was a fellow called Stanislav Petrov. Have you heard of him? No. He was manning a Soviet nuclear bunker. And over his equipment, it signaled that there were nuclear warheads in the air headed from the US towards Russia. If he'd have followed protocol, which he should, and which he'd done every other day of his life, he should have launched a, a, a retaliatory attack. Millions of people should have died in 1983. He, as a human, made a split second decision not to believe the evidence in front of him. And he refused to, to, to launch. Subsequently, it turned out, he had no information at the time, Subsequently, it turned out that uh, they weren't nuclear warheads in the air. It was an uh, early Soviet system glitch where sunlight glinting off clouds, making it look like no Soviet warheads. Now, my, my answer to your question, this isn't what I want to, the best invention, this is what I want to keep about us. In the march to AI, and as we hand over more and more control to AI, stuff like that, I would like to retain human skill at the right point it's a fudgy answer i know Mm. it just it's a fascinating story and just makes you think how often we've come to the brink of annihilation and destruction if not for (laughs) you know the ingenuity of certain individuals um it's it's amazing to think that we almost it, it came this close 
Um, yeah, really fascinating story. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it's something that I think we should all keep in the back of our minds as AI continues to march onwards. Um, <laughs> interesting future ahead of us all, yeah. I think. Russell, thank you so much for being on, on the show for a second time. Pleasure. I, I really enjoyed it. Subscribe to this podcast in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and Google Music. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Remake Manufacturing. I'm Nathan Anibaba. See you next time. Thank you.